This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Another East TraumaCast. I'm Dave Morris, your moderator for our discussion today. Uh, every month, the East Manuscript and Literature Review section publishes a literature review that highlights a specific topic within the field of acute care surgery, whether it's trauma, critical care, emergency general surgery. Uh, today, we'll be discussing uh, two papers from the August edition of the East Literature Review that highlight pediatric trauma. Uh, joining me today are several distinguished guests. Uh, first, uh, John Petty. John, would you mind introducing yourself? I am John Petty. I'm Pediatric Trauma Director at the Brainerd Children's Hospital in Wake Forest uh, Medical Center at uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and helped uh, put the review together for the uh, Pediatric Trauma uh, e-blast in August. Great. Thanks, John. It's good to have you here. Uh, also, we have uh, two of the authors for the uh, papers that we'll be discussing. First, here to help discuss her paper, Acute Traumatic Coagulopathy in a Critically Injured Pediatric Population. Definition, trend over time, and outcomes. We have Dr. Barbara Gaines. Uh, Dr. Gaines, would you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Barb Gaines. I'm the Director of Trauma and Injury Prevention at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh of UPMC in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Great. Good to have you here as well. And uh, also we have... Oh, you bet. Uh, Also here to discuss his paper, Outcomes of Pediatric Patients with Persistent Midline Cervical Spine Tenderness and Negative Imaging Results After Trauma, we have Dr. David Mooney. Uh, Dr. Mooney... Uh, please introduce yourself as well. Yeah, hi, I'm David Mooney. I'm uh, the director of the Trauma Center up at uh, Boston Children's Hospital. And thank you for having me. Great. Thank you all for joining us. And also uh, joining me as always is my co-moderator, Dr. Matt Martin. Matt, say hello. Hey, guys. Matt Martin. And uh, happy to listen to you guys fill us in on some pediatric trauma hot topics. Well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, I know many of our listeners are uh, primarily adult trauma providers, um, but most of us are called on from time to time to care for injured children, and I think, therefore, it's uh, even more critical that we stay current on the issues that uh, in pediatric trauma that may not uh, be as familiar to us, so I'm uh, excited about our discussion today. Uh, why don't we first uh, take the topic of the acute traumatic coagulopathy in children, and uh, why don't we have uh, Dr. Gaines, why don't you tell us about the study and uh, how it arose and uh, the reasons that you decided to tackle this topic? Sure. I mean, I think um, acute acute traumatic coagulopathy is certainly a topic that's been discussed quite a bit in the adult trauma community, um, particularly with um, in regards to issues related to massive transfusion, transfusion ratios, emerging or new uses of old technology like thromboelastography. And we were interested in really better understanding the issues related to traumatic coagulopathy in our injured pediatric population. Um, We are a level one trauma center. We see a fairly large number of injured children, and we have an interesting demographic in that we are an urban trauma center. We're located in the city of Pittsburgh, um, but we also have a very large rural catchment area. And so we have an interesting population of both um, urban types of trauma, short transport times, and then rural trauma with longer transport times. 
and um, a fairly um, high number of patients who are from the scene as well as those who are referred to us. And so, um, as I said, we were interested in just looking at the issue of um, traumatic coagulopathy in pediatric patients. And as we looked at the literature, we realized that the first thing we really needed to do was define it um, because there really wasn't a very good definition of what acute traumatic coagulopathy was in a pediatric population. Um, there's some papers that were published with it an INR of 1.3, some with an INR of 1.5, um, some with clinical evidence of bleeding, some without. And so our first step in this particular publication was to define what acute traumatic coagulopathy was. And we did this using something called the UDEN index, which is basically taking a series of sensitivity and specificities and plotting them almost like on a ROC curve and finding the place where you have the maximum um, maximum sensitivity and specificity for your um, particular outcome, which was mortality. And um, what we found is probably somewhat surprising is that an INR of 1.3 um, was already where we saw this inflection point. So an, at an elevated INR of 1.3, which is not a, really a clinically relevant elevation of an INR, we already saw an inflection in mortality. So less than uh, an INR of less than 1.3 or 1.2 and below had a mortality of about 2%. And as soon as at that 1.3 to 1.4 range, we already were seeing an INR or excuse me, a mortality of around 10%. As the initial admission INR became more elevated, the mortality rates increased. And so an in, in injured pediatric cohort with an INR of greater than 1.8 had about a 64% mortality. And we thought that this was pretty Remarkable. We then did some things to look at this a little bit more. We corrected um, using logistic regression to see if maybe this was just an, um, that they were more severely injured and it actually is an independent predictor of mortality. We looked at those patients who received blood products and those who didn't, and it appeared that attempts to correct an elevated INR was not associated with an improvement, um, suggesting um, that this wasn't really a treatment target, but actually a marker of poor prognosis. We then looked at whether the trend over time, what, what about what happens when your INR is elevated at 24 hours, and what happens if it was normal and then was elevated, or if you were able to correct it. And we basically saw that trends over time, that if you had an elevated INR and it was never able to correct, that was really bad. If you had a normal INR and then it became abnormal, that was bad. If you were able to, if your INR was able to correct, that was better. And again, all of those associations were independent of blood product transfusion, suggesting that there was something in me, that this INR wasn't really measuring coagulation per se, but a major disruption in, in homostasis in these patients. Um, we had a sister publication that um, looked at our abusive head trauma patients a little bit more closely and found that this association was even more strong in that particular population. Yeah, I, I, as I read this paper, it raised uh, a bunch of really interesting questions, a, uh, a bunch of surprising findings, and uh, hopefully we'll get into that. Let me uh, first turn to uh, Dr. Penny. Would you please tell us a little bit about how your group uh, chose this paper and uh, why it stood out, and maybe uh, things, questions that you learned or things that you learned about it as you did the review? Yeah, yeah. I think this is a very uh, intriguing paper for a lot of the reasons that um, Dr. Gaines has already identified, I think coagulation is a very sort of fertile area for investigation in trauma, and yet on the pediatric side of things, 
I think there's, in some ways, more unanswered questions than answered questions. I, I think on the PEED side, we don't see, uh, to the same extent, sort of bleeding to death kinds of injuries. Massive transfusion is certainly performed, but not as common in pediatric trauma. And on the other side, uh, thromboembolic complications, VTE and DVT and that sort of thing, are less common. So there, there's something about sort of coagulation biology as we develop from being little people to big people that, that changes. And so I think a paper like this is, is certainly an important step in that direction of, well, what, well what's that all about? I, I, I won't recapitulate too much of what Dr. Gaines has already said, but uh, for the, the review team, I think some of the things that really stood out was, I think this is uh, a real finding in the sense that there was sort of a, a dose response uh, that they identified in terms of how deranged uh, the INR uh, was, you know, the more severe, the higher mortality, this, you know, the denominator for this study was, you know, pediatric ICU patients who are level one activation. So, so really, that's a great sort of target group and, and this sort of 29% mortality with an elevated INR, I think really links this to their hypothesis nicely. Um, I think, you know, as Dr. Gaines already identified, I don't know how much this was driving transfusion decisions, but it didn't seem to correlate with how much transfusion these patients got as to their outcome. And so um, it, it, it raises questions even as it starts to, to answer them, I think. Um, you know, one question to Dr. Gaines or anyone else, you know, on the panel has to do with, you know, were these patients really bleeding, you know, in the sense of it, is coagulopathy the right label for this? Um, you know, is it an acute phase reactant or some other derangement that is reflected in the INR, but uh, may or may not be reflected with sort of bedside assessments of, of bleeding? Um, and I also found it interesting that when they looked at age and broke into age categories, that it was certainly a very similar finding, and I guess there's part of me that wonders, what is it about age, and you know, is is there something, is there another way to sort of slice this up uh, related to the age and development question that might shed some light on kind of a clinical phenomenon that we uh, appreciate? So those are just a couple observations, but I, I, I would congratulate Dr. Gaines and her collaborators on getting this out there and kind of moving the needle in terms of pediatric co coagulation um, in trauma uh, one step forward. Yeah, thanks. And Dr. Gaines, let me throw it back to you and, and ask you maybe even just a very basic background question. Can you talk about a child's INR? And, and you mentioned in your paper several times that it, 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 it variable whether between infants and school-age children and so on and so forth. How does that change over time, and how should we interpret that if we're the, you know, say the, the reluctant pediatric trauma provider that's called on to take care of an injured kid? So um, coagulation factors, if you measure them, change over time, but the um, international standardized ratio, which are the INR, is really the same. So we use in a pediatric trauma center or in a neonatal intensive care unit or a pediatric intensive care unit, we use the same values to say normal or abnormal. Um, so the age issue is really quite interesting because it seems that factors are changing, um, but whatever the INR is measuring um, doesn't seem to be changing, and the relationship was the same when we saw it in children, and again, um, that subset of abusive head trauma, this, this phenomenon was even 
more strongly demonstrated than in our general population of trauma patients. I think getting to um, John's question, um, were these patients bleeding and are we really, really measuring coagulopathy? And I think that's the, the key here is I don't think that we're measuring an iron. It's hard to say that a INR of 1.3 or 1.4 is clinically significant. So we don't think that what we're looking at is a treatment target. But we think this is a marker of a system that's going haywire and that as the system is more and more deranged, it's sort of another marker of a critically injured potentially, and it serves as a prognostic marker, not as a treatment marker. Um, We've been working a lot with looking at things like um, pegs and to see if we can figure out a little bit more about what's wrong. And we're sort of the belief that it probably may not have anything to do with how blood clots, but some earlier um, effect that is, um, and this is a, a late manifestation, but something that we are readily measuring. It brings up interesting questions. For example, if the INR, if it's not really a clotting problem, then a patient who comes in with a traumatic brain injury and an INR of eight, should we wait to give them FFP and correct the INR or should we intervene on that brain injury sooner? And those are the questions that we're really interested in answering and trying to figure out more information and again, looking at things like tags to see if that can help us. If they're not, if it's not a bleeding problem, then maybe we don't have to treat that elevated INR, but treat the underlying issue that is um, causing this child to be critically ill. And so, Barb, so during this study period, uh, was there any protocolized uh, transfusion practice at your center, or was this just no. provider-specific? This was provider-specific. This, this data was um, collected before we started using TEGS. We do have a massive transfusion protocol, but that was not um, targeted to any type of number, so this was all um, provider Specific. So there was nothing that said if you have an INR of X, you should give Y. Um, there was uh, nothing that said if you have a hemoglobin of something, you should give a particular product or platelets. Um, there, at the time that this study was done with these patients, um, we were not using TXA, so none of these patients received TXA. Okay, and then, and then uh, how about you, John and, and Dave? Uh, do you guys both have protocolized massive transfusion protocols now at your centers? We do. We do. It's, uh, it, it is rare to use it, though. I mean, I think there is something different about the pediatric trauma patient. Um, but it's uh, kind of like Dr. Gaines mentioned, sort of based on, you know, actual or projected losses, not necessarily driven so much by a um, – you know, trigger in terms of initiation and, and driving it, you know, until the clinical bleeding stops. Yes, this is Dave Mooney. We, we certainly have a, a protocol at our shop, and it's a requirement now for the uh, Committee on Trauma that uh, pediatric trauma centers have a pediatric-based uh, uh, massive transfusion protocol, or at least one has been adjusted to pediatric uh, volume needs. Uh, and I would have to say that um, we may have used ours uh, about three years ago, um, but it's it's very infrequent in a trauma patient. It's much more frequent for other varieties of kids that undergo big operations. But sure. as John was saying, there's just something about kids where um, uh, it's a, just an unusual situation that you need to uh, to use it. 
And so, so what guides your massive transfusion protocol, though? Is, is it INR? Is it is it TEG? Is it or do you just prescribe, you know, a ratio, a one to one or a one to two ratio? What does your protocol say? Yeah, it's um. So we don't have a bedside tag at our place. So, you know, it's sending off coagulation panels, you know, at regular intervals. I would say it's mostly driven by clinical bleeding and sort of shock factors, you know, base deficit and that sort of thing, too. Uh, the wind-down part of it is a little bit um, kind of in the eye of the beholder, you know, once the numbers start to come back. But it, it's more kind of ratio-driven and kind of, uh, weight-based volume-driven, uh, if that makes any sense. And and so what ratio? You know, because, I mean, the, the adult world has gone to one-to-one, one, you know, mostly, some places one-to-two. But, but pediatrics, you know, like you said, there's not great data, and, and I think we're all over the map on that. So what what ratio would you use if you just had to give a massive transfusion to a kid and it was massively bleeding? We use one-to-one. One. Okay. Now, Barb and David, you both use one-to-one? We do also, yeah. We would, That's yeah. That's our target, but we are really um, now are using PEG-directed um, hemostatic resuscitation. So we would start, we have, um, we actually now have whole blood in the emergency department, so that's our first product, which is truly one-to-one. Um, but we also would start with the pack cells, and we have um, solid plasma immediately available. And so pack cells, solid plasma, platelets are about... 15 minutes behind those, and then after those initial products, then we really try to move on to a TEG-directed um, hemostatic resuscitation, trying to replace product as product is needed. I'm surprised that you need blood frequently enough to keep it in the ER. We're a bloody population here, I guess. Um, we've used it <laughs> since we started whole blood in June, and we've used it um, seven times. Wow. That's too bad. And that's just for pediatric patients, or is that for pediatric that's or adults? Yeah, we're a children's hospital. Oh, wow. So AT, we've had a couple gunshot wounds, um, ATVs, lawnmowers. Um, I will tell you that this is these, these were very critically injured children. So of those seven or so children, um, there's about a 45% mortality. So um, these were really sick kids who came in. Um, yeah. But, yes, um, we have... We've tried, actually, one of the things that in our PI process is that we've identified is that sometimes we don't give blood soon enough, and so we've really been trying to encourage that when the child comes in tachycardic and not looking so hot, um, to think about blood much sooner and not necessarily um, wait till they really are screaming at you that they need it. And Dr. Gaines, did any of the uh, children in the paper have uh, TEG or Rotem at all to kind of compare to? And I realize the paper didn't mention the other, but I just wondered out no. of curiosity. Um, this patient population, I don't believe, that's we're working on some of those correlations now. Um, we have had TEG as a standard in our emergency department since June of 2015, and so we've now um, collected a, a fairly large cohort of patients, and we're looking at that data to look at correlations between PT, INR, and TEG factors, um, again, to sort of try to really hone in on, is this, a, is this INR issue a bleeding problem, or is this INR issue something else? And our sense is that it's something else, and that um, it doesn't necessarily correlate with an ab, abnormal ACT on TEG, or even an abnormal K or an angle on TEG, um, that it doesn't seem that they're 
factor deficient, which is what we're really replacing when we give FFP, it seems like this INR elevation is a marker of poor prognosis. And what do you think the connection is? I know a large uh, percentage of the patients in this paper had non-accidental head trauma. Is there, you know, sometimes in the adult world we think, like with penetrating injury to the brain, maybe there's release of tissue factor that mixes with the bloodstream and causes coagulopathy or thing. Is it something along those same lines in kids with uh, with head injuries? Well, it's, it's hard to tell because um, abusive head trauma is a really interesting phenomenon because many of them don't have um, – it tends to be an ischemic injury as opposed to a um, bleeding or space-occupying lesion. Now, there can be some with – um, subdurals, um, but oftentimes it's also an injury that's not necessarily, you don't know when it happened, so you may be seeing delayed effects or not. So we're not sure. Oftentimes our abusive head trauma patients actually look more like um, patients with other um, anoxic ischemic injuries like drownings or hangings or cardiac arrest as opposed to acutely traumatically injured patients like a patient with a, in a car accident or something like that. So they definitely behave differently. It's well known throughout the in the pediatric um, trauma literature and in the child abuse literature that patients with abusive head trauma do more poorly than um, patients with other accidental injury mechanisms. So they definitely are different. Um, I don't have a good mechanism for that, but part of what we think makes them different is this probable ischemic aspect and a relatively long time between injury and presentation to care. So, so Barb, so it, tell me if I'm misstating this <laughs> from your paper, but uh, is the conclusion that it doesn't matter if you try and correct the INR, so it's, it's futile to try and correct it because it didn't seem to matter if they got plasma or didn't get plasma with an elevated um, INR? I think that that... I, I think that would be a little bit stronger than what I would say. What I would say is that inability to correct an INR suggests um, a significant injury and is a very poor prognostic sign. I wouldn't say that I wouldn't try with this significant because the ones that came in with an elevated one and did normalize did better. Now, whether that was because we gave them plasma or because we did other interventions, we don't have that data. So I don't have the data to say don't try to correct the INR, but what my data suggests is that if you have a patient who comes in the door and their INR is elevated, you better be very worried about that patient. Okay. You know, I think part of the spirit of um, this sort of exercise is, you know, papers that should change your practice. And I, I would just say that since sort of hearing this paper presented at East and reviewing it again, my little kind of twitch meter for INR is definitely on now that, you know, I think that number as low as 1.3 that, you know, you would just sort of get your labs back and just blow right past that number. Again, I'm, I'm not sure what to do with that other than to say that my threshold for giving plasma or that sort of thing is definitely lower than, you know, wait till it's two or one and a half even. Um, and, and I think that this paper speaks to that. Now, whether that's going to actually make any difference for these patients or not. But but I think just as a um, kind of a checkpoint in, in the patient's care, it, it's influenced how I, you know, practice with patients that are in pretty rough shape like these ones were. So, so uh, John and Dave, what, what, would, what would be your general cut point then for 
transfusing a traumatically injured kid with giving them plasma? What INR would would you say? Yeah, that's that's something I would pretty much usually give plasma or start correcting. A lot of depends. Um, a patient with a brain injury, um, I'd probably start around one three. Sure. Um, someone who didn't have a brain injury, um, and part of partly the reason for the brain injury is if we're considering uh, monitoring, putting in a monitor. Um, I would want to fix that first before um, the monitor was placed. Um, in a kid without um, without a bad brain injury, I guess number one, it'd be pretty unusual to have things so prolonged uh, without a brain injury because it does seem to be something relatively specific about brain injury that leads to um, prolongation in the in the uh, INR. Um, but again, if there were some odd patient with a prolongation, I, I'm, I don't really have an exact number. I guess it would really depend on the situation. Okay. Yeah, so it, I would I argue that uh, I'm not sure whether – I don't think I would give plasma for an INR of 1.3 or 1.4, but I might be more likely to put that patient in the ICU or um, do – if I wasn't – do more advanced imaging or, again, it would highlight to me – wow, maybe this patient is sicker than I was thinking on my initial evaluation. I think when, they, when the INRs start to give above 1.5, then we start to think about giving um, plasma if it appears that the patient is bleeding. Um, and again, many of these, in fact, most of these patients didn't really look like they were bleeding. So I'm not sure that just correcting the INR in a non-bleeding patient is necessarily with plasma is necessarily indicated. The traumatic brain injury patients, we certainly will give them the plasma, but I think that's one of our ongoing questions. Is it really helping them? Um, or again, is this something different? Is this saying, this is this like the base excess? This, a base excess greater than eight, this is a sick patient. It's not a, we don't fix the base excess to, you know, we don't give them bicarb to fix the base excess, but we say, ooh, this is a sick patient. Thank you don't give bicarb to fix the base excess? That's the only treatment I do. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I must have missed that chapter. Sounds like we need a different podcast for that. <laughs> the only so, other thing so, that I think it helps oh. with is, um, you know, as I get a sort of a perspective on adult trauma and kind of where a lot of that's going in terms of using plasma as a resuscitation fluid, I, I think this sort of thing helps maybe the PEDS folks who are a little later to that party to have some more courage to do that. You know, I, again, I don't know that it, it fixes anything, or but it may not be that you have to be bleeding to death to benefit from plasma, and that study would need to be done, but, but I, I just get that understanding that plasma is being used in the adult population, not necessarily because a certain number is identified and wrong, but but as you know, in place of the sort of massive amounts of alien or LR that used to be kind of the sort of entry point into trauma resuscitation, it seems like plasma is sort of moving earlier and earlier into that, and, and I think this may be I, we may see something like that more in pediatric trauma. Mm. I do think with so, resuscitation in general that the idea that we shouldn't be resuscitating with salt water. If a patient is bleeding, we certainly should be resuscitating them with blood. And then, um, you know, as I, while the data doesn't isn't out there yet for kids in one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one versus other ratios, the idea of they're bleeding blood, we should be giving them blood back. 
that we shouldn't be necessarily giving them salt water. So let me uh, let me pose a scenario here and see if uh, see if this makes sense. So I'm a primarily uh, adult provider in a hospital that doesn't even admit maybe uh, injured kids. Can we use this paper as a transfer threshold to say, oh, their INR is 1.3, we're going to transfer a kid who otherwise looks okay to a pediatric trauma center, whereas if they're 1.2, maybe we'll keep them and observe them there or send them home from the ED even? Can we make that jump on this data? I think that it's another marker. I think that you look at your clinical exam, but I think if you're starting to see INRs that are elevated, I think it does suggest that this patient is responding um, is having a systemic response to an injury and that potentially there is, it is a potentially severe injury. And so I think that that would not be unreasonable um, to be part of some of the transfer criteria. Um, I'm, would it be the only one? Absolutely not. But I think, again, it's, start, it's just it's that 1.3 is starting to be an inflection point where, um, although I certainly don't think that patient needs plasma, um, unless there's evidence of, of active bleeding, there's something that's not right. Uh, Dave Moody, your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I think like Barb was saying, I think it's part of the package um, and just another metabolic derangement. Um, and, and it would be very odd for it to be the, the only thing that you saw. You know, it's just out of the blue, the INR is high and everything else looks good. And the kid otherwise looks great. Um, I would suspect it would just be in line with the other things, factors you would use to decide whether to keep the child or, or to ship them. Yeah, I, I think, you know, within the paper in that sort of table three, they also looked at some other things that were sort of going wrong with these patients and hypothermia, um, ISS, you know, that sort of thing too. So I, I think it, and, and the and the entry point into the study was level one traumas who went to the PICU. So I, I think as in as much as INR reflects that group, the sickest of those sick patients, um, I'm not. I'm not sure that this paper can speak to the kid with the isolated femur fracture who might also have an INR of 1.3 because they weren't really incorporated in the study. You know, I think I don't know what that number would mean in a patient who, like Dr. Mooney was saying, otherwise looks good. You kind of have a handle on what's going on. But I, I think these patients in this study, you know, you could look at them from all sorts of different angles, but they were sick from every one of those angles. I was uh, particularly impressed by the Kathleen Meyer uh, survival curve uh, right next to Table 3 in the paper and uh, reminded me of the similar curves you see in the adult population, particularly from uh, from the military and from some of the battlefield uh, studies demonstrating that INR derangements uh, confer a significant mortality risk. Uh, I guess my question is, is, do you think maybe pound for pound it's, it's a more dire risk in kids than it is in adults? I mean, the, the curves are... Uh, much further apart in this in this graph than in the adult uh, papers. Yeah, I don't I don't think we have enough patients to say that. I think that we have enough to say that it is that um, it is a marker. I think it may be that if you the kids are really good at compensating, and if you get if you perturb them enough that they don't compensate, and INR is a marker of that inability to compensate, then they fall off the cliff. It kind of looks a little like. The, those PAL or, or ATLS graphs of, you know, tachycardia, blood pressure, and blood loss, and then all of a sudden they kind of fall off the cliff kind of thing when they are in it, when they are no longer able to compensate. And so maybe this INR is another marker of an inability to compensate. 
So let me ask a quick question, actually, that we were just having a conversation about uh, to each of you. How do you define massive transfusion uh, for pediatric patients, or how are you defining it at your center? I mean, you know, adults, we typically use 10 units in 24 hours, and, and kids, I've probably heard 10 different definitions. Just wondering, how do you guys define it for your massive transfusion protocol? So I, I think you're, you're asking somewhat of two different questions. So we activate our massive transfusion protocol when we think that there's going to be a lot of blood loss. Um, sure. And so think that there's going to be a lot of blood loss is, is really hard to quantify. Um, and so if you look at massive transfusion activations, that's what it would be. If we are defining it for, for example, a research paper, then we've been using um, NEFS data, the 40 cc's per kilo of transfused blood volume. Okay. How about you, John and, and Dave, same thing? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you'd, you'd like to start it before you get in the soup. <laughs> um, and so I think there's a clinical piece to it. I mean, I think the, you know, I think that, Lucnef's paper of lowering that from a whole blood volume of, you know, somewhere 60 to 80 down to 40, I think that's probably a better sort of numerical trigger than um, than a whole blood volume before you sure. sort of go into that. Yeah, we our, our trigger is, um, the official trigger is, uh, if it's anticipated you might lose a blood volume in the, in the next 24 hours. And, uh, but it would be, again, we, we do it so unusually um, it was just basically a kid who seems like they're really bleeding. You know, we don't calibrate how much blood they're losing first before we would activate it. Sure. And, and the last quick question for each of you, have, uh, have you integrated TXA into your transfusion protocol, and are you using it in, in traumatically injured kids? So, um, as I said, we have gone to um, TEG-directed um, hemostatic resuscitation, so it is part of our TEG um, parameters. So if a patient comes in with an LY30 of greater than 3%, then we will give um, TXA. Um, we um, have not incorporated it, it empirically, um, although there's a little disclaimer that if someone comes in um, in extremis within three hours of injury and appears to be um, from bleeding, then um, consider TXA, um, but mostly it's PEG-directed um, care. Um, and that's based on some of our data, um, some of which we presented at AAST that was looking, and, and even um, many of our hemorrhaging, pa hemorrhaging patients seem to be coming in and, and shut down. And um, we are a little concerned that TXA may not be necessarily beneficial in that group. Yeah, we, um, we have TXA sort of on the shelf and haven't sort of built it into our massive transfusion uh, protocol, but you know, I think the paper that you guys put out last year um, says we probably should be using it. It's just the massive transfusion patient is not a particularly common thing, but to the extent of having it on a piece of paper. I mean, we have a protocol like for craniofacial surgery patients and that sort of thing from the pharmacy that we can tap into. So we're sort of somewhere in between where I think there's an awareness of it and um, um, a value for it, but it hasn't been built into where I would say that it's automatic or, you know, after your third red cell transfusion, that's when you get the TXA. Um, sure. Probably if you're going to give it all, it's better to give it before they even get to the hospital. Um, but that's hard to anticipate for a lot of our patients. 
All right. We have given it. Well, it's a fascinating topic, and I think, uh, you know, there there may be a lot to learn about the adult coagulation cascade by studying children. It seems like this is a pretty uh, a pretty ripe area for, for a lot more research that needs to be done. And, again, I congratulate you, Dr. Gaines, and your co-authors on uh, publishing this paper. It's very thought-provoking and uh, very interesting read. So. Thank you. Um, why don't we uh, turn now to the second paper, uh, this paper is uh, Outcomes of Pediatric Patients with Persistent Midline Cervical Spine Tenderness and Negative Imaging Result After Trauma. And uh, Dr. Mooney, um, you were not the – Dr. Dorney – Dr. Kate Dorney was the lead author, and you were uh, one of the authors. Could you uh, talk a little bit about uh, this paper and how it arose and um, the impetus to do this paper? This paper arose uh, out of discussions with our emergency department about a, a particular uh, niche issue. This isn't quite a cool thing like uh, Barb's paper. This is more something that is in the uh, the annoyance and what happens to these kids that we've been managing a certain way. And the particular problem that we uh, hope to uh, address through this were, were children who we would see in the emergency department that would have uh, C-spine tenderness. Um, they weren't really hurt badly enough to be admitted, but they, um, and their imaging was negative. And then what do we do for them? Do we um, scan them? Do we get an MR? Do we, um, you know, admit them because their neck is tender? Or do we send them home in a collar or to send them home? And uh, one of the question was raised when um, we were just chatting one day, and I just thought, boy, you send a kid home in a collar and, you're never going to see them again, and uh, they'll probably have that collar off within about 24 hours of being home, um, you know, back to the playground. And uh, so we decided to um, – each of our ED fellows is required to do uh, some form of a research project during their fellowship. And so uh, Kate was interested in this uh, for um, a project for her. And um, so what we did was um, we had this uh, pretty cool search feature um, where we're able to search uh, the ED uh, text fields for different things that, you know, could be associated with, with an injury. And um, we've done this before for uh, kids who fell down through a glass table or some other things that can be kind of hard to find because many of the, the ICD-9 uh, and actually, unfortunately, now ICD-10 codes don't uh, fit quite as readily with things, some of the injury prevention you know, needs. We're, we're still stuck with things like sports or struck by or fall uh, for mechanisms, for example. And so the, the concern here was we wanted to find kids in our, who'd come into our emergency department and uh, were sent uh, out of the emergency department uh, in a collar uh, after having films that were normal. Um, and so we identified patients through two routes. One was kids who um, fell out through our tech search and that was a little over 700 children, and this was a, this was a five years that we looked at these kids. Uh, and then looking just straight through ICD-9 uh, diagnosis coding for uh, for cervical uh, sprain, uh, we found another 116 kids, uh, grouped them together, and then Kate uh, sat and looked through their records to see um, if they had any abnormalities, um, if they uh, were um, discharged in a collar or not. Um, and then um, when she did that, we actually excluded about 500 of the kids. So any kid with a, uh, who got it either admitted to the hospital, uh, their imaging was abnormal, um, or they went home uh, without a collar on, 
which was about 300 of the kids. Um, that They were excluded, and that left us with a, a little over 300 kids who were sent out of the ED home in a collar and uh, with a planned follow-up to be seen back in spine clinic in a, a couple weeks uh, for clearance. Um, and what we then found was that uh, of the kids, uh, it was an interesting group of kids, um, and it has a lot of the usual kind of stuff that happens when you review uh, a group of patients. There's a lot of heterogeneity in the kids, a heterogeneity in how they presented, their mechanisms, um, and their symptoms on arrival. And a fair number of them actually had um, uh, some uh, either paresthesias or even some motor weakness uh, in the ED on arrival. And it's not uncommon. I, I actually don't know if this is a common adult thing, but it's actually not uncommon for us to have a child arrive uh, where they will say they can't feel their hands or their arm or their arms and legs, but while they're uh, sitting in the ED, they just get all better. Um, and uh, there were a fair number of those kids. Um, they, um, she looked at the imaging the patients um, had uh, before they went home. Uh, most kids were, were sort of an anti-CT screening place, uh, and about 90% of the kids had plain films of their neck. Um, only about 2%. We, we don't typically do flex X views acutely, but uh, six kids uh, or 2% of the kids um, snuck by and had flex X films done. Uh, there were about 20% who had a CT done. Uh, the large majority of them were done in an outside hospital before the kids were sent to us. Because um, we have about 0.2% of our ED patients get uh, CTs of their neck. Um, and about 8% of the kids underwent an MR. And uh, we try to reserve CT or MR for um, the CT for abnormalities identified on plain films. If they need to be clarified, uh, we'll scan that segment. And then the MR was uh, we typically reserve for patients who are symptomatic, and symptomatic meaning uh, weakness, paresthesias, um, neurologic findings, not so much for tenderness itself. Um, and the uh, then when she looked at uh, what happened to these kids uh, after they went home, um, about 100 and about 190 of them, um, and I'm blanking on what percent, around 70 percent uh, followed up in spine clinic. Um, she was able to track down. Uh, many of the other kids, and only 18 of the 300 or so kids were lost to follow-up. Um, and through pouring through the records, their spine records here, and actually calling them on the phone and speaking to other families, uh, the ones that didn't show up for the spine clinic, uh, what we found was there were uh, the large majority of the kids who came back to spine clinic, 160 of the 100 and about 190, about 84 percent of them, uh, were able to be cleared in in that clinic visit. Um, many of them underwent plain films. About 40% of them had plain x-rays done. Uh, quite a few had flex x films done, which is what they were sort of supposed to have done by protocol if they still had uh, pain. Uh, there were about uh, 13 of them had an MRI done when they came back. Uh, but again, around 85, 6 of them were able to be cleared uh, with that uh, spine uh, visit. Uh, 19 of the kids had... Uh, ongoing pain and were um, sent out of spine in a collar, but came back, it was a subsequent visit and were cleared uh, clinically at a later visit. And about 10 kids, uh, when they came back, uh, had abnormal uh, imaging uh, at spine clinic after having initially uh, normal imaging uh, when they were in the emergency department. And of those 10 kids, uh, which was about 5% of the group, um, we listed out their different findings. Uh, one of them had a Chiari malformation. Uh, that had to have the KRE malformation decompressed 
uh, a gymnast uh, who had landed on her head. Um, the other kids all had a, a different collection of increased signal in different parts of their spine, all of which were treated with from two to six more weeks of uh, just um, basically immobilization in a collar and all resolved without uh, needing an operation. Um, and uh, the point we tried to make is that um, it actually, and kind of surprisingly to me, does seem to work out fairly well to have kids leave the emergency department uh, in a hard collar if, if you're unable to clear, if your imaging is negative and you're unable to clear their neck uh, at that moment, uh, that we, we don't need to go on to CT and uh, do more advanced imaging for the, the bulk of the kids. Um, and the kids who did have a problem when they came back, which is a, a small percentage of them, um, only one of them needed surgery, and that was actually for a congenital issue that was probably unrelated to the, the neck injury. Uh, and the other kids all resolved their problems with uh, just a longer period of time uh, in a collar. And so, uh, so again, it just said that niche group of kids where you're just not able to clear their neck adequately, but they're walking around the ER in a collar, um, that it is safe uh, to send them home. Um, my ED colleagues thought it would be um, okay to send them back to their primary care doc. Uh, since, uh, you know, five, six of them really didn't have that much done in the spine clinic. And, and I, I'm not sure about that myself. I think if their primary care doc is comfortable and knowledgeable about, you know, identification of problems should they happen, um, I think that would be great. But I, I, I doubt that um, this is something that they would see often enough to either be comfortable or knowledgeable in it. So I think a spine visit is probably a, not, uh, not an unreasonable thing. Thanks for that summary. I think uh, you mentioned that this is sort of a niche uh, population, but I think in reality this is a, this is a very common thing that we run across all the time, and certainly in the adult world. So I think this is a, there's a lot of important uh, uh, information we can get out of this study. So I, I found it very interesting. Um, John, Patty, would you mind telling us how you chose this paper as part of the East uh, Literature Review, and what's the yeah. to you? Yeah, no, this felt like a kind of a real world paper uh, in terms of. Yeah, exactly. um, patients that uh, a lot of us see and kind of struggle with what to do, and um, you know, I, I I appreciated the honesty that went into the paper. It, you know, the patients in the ED really got a, a bit of a mixed bag of who saw them and what studies were done, and and that just felt like real life to me. You know, I, I think the person that's assessing them may or may not call a spine consult. That consultant may or may not want imaging there, but I think where this really sort of moves the ball down the field has to do with these kids with some pain and, and what do you do with them. And I think it, it it does sort of offload the ED moment of we've got to get this all sorted out here, you know, that um, that it, it seems to be a very safe thing to do to let them go home with some pain as long as they're in the collar. And, uh, and, and you've got some spine clinic willing to receive those patients. I mean, I think that was the plan, although, you know, somewhere around 30% of the patients never showed up, you know. And so I think, you know, what's the story on, on those patients? Well, there probably is a group of patients that do self-select, and it's kind of perhaps a little frightening to think of that as, as our plan. But at the same time, you know, I think even in children, right, we're, they're, they're designed to protect themselves from themselves with pain. And uh, these were patients that certainly were excluded from the study if they had other major injuries. So, so it is that group of 
of sort of otherwise well children uh, where there's not a lot of other stuff going on. They're not in the hospital in that. So I think that's really the um, the value of this is uh, that it, it is it's a safe thing to do. There, as Dr. Mooney already identified there weren't they went home and went got paralyzed or came back to spine clinic or that sort of thing. Um, I think as he already alluded to, there's some stuff in the kind of discussion bar, part about sending them to primary care physicians that seems a little far-reaching and outside of what was accomplished in the, um, you know, what was it within the scope of this actual study. And I can imagine a lot of primary care people um, being a little bit off-put by kids with college going to their clinic. But and I, and I didn't know if the story behind the story on that was. It was hard to get them into the spine clinic, or it was easier from the ED folks to uh, want to send them to their PCPs as they do with a lot of other things too. So that's a little bit of an observation turned into a question. And then my my other sort of observation from when we were discussing this paper is, um, I, I would say that 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 spine clinic piece of it seemed to also be a bit of a mixed bag. So I think it would be appealing to hope that. These children with pain who go home in the collar would become pain-free at the spine clinic, and everyone gets their collars off, and, and that in aggregate you would avoid a lot of imaging, and that was true for a big chunk of them, but it wasn't for everybody. It was somewhere around half of those that came back, you know, were able to be sort of cleared without much more investigation. But there still was a group that um, that the spine clinic folks dug a little deeper on, and that felt very real world to me too, you know, that what do you do then, you know, if they're still hurting or if there's something you're concerned about or a different person's looking at them. Um, so anyway, I felt like there was very sort of honest representation of how a lot of these things go. And and in that, I think it's, I have better confidence sort of relying on it. You know, I, I think it, it fits with how how these things really happen in real life. Dave Mooney, any uh, response to those? Well, the the um, so a spine here is either it's orthopedics on odd days and neuro on even days, and um, depending on the day the patient is seen in the ED, uh, they come back to one or the other. Um, and blessing and a curse, uh, I think we now have about 27 or 28 orthopedic surgeons and eight uh, neurosurgeons, and. Um, this the the, the quote-unquote routine uh, that isn't a clear protocol is that patients get a, a were to get flex exes when they return, um, and uh, sort of fortunately that didn't happen in 58% of them because um, they they were they were able to be cleared without them, um, and uh, the uh, with the collection of you know the volume of different providers who see these kids back in that clinic. Um, you know, again, it's. Uh, I'm surprised it wasn't more confusing than uh, than the paper looks. Uh, we we hold off on the the more advanced imaging, which is one of the sort of side points of the paper. Again, unless the other films or our clinical exams, like you know, neurologic findings, point us that direction. And um, I, I think looking at it from that way, um, you know, it's uh, again, 80% of these kids uh, didn't have a CT. And um, and these are kids with with neck pain. These aren't kids, uh, you know, just uh, the random child who's someone decided to board in collar uh, because it met their pre-hospital protocol. These are kids that had symptoms that, uh, in many places, would have resulted in a um, CT scan. Uh, Dr. Daines, do you guys have a protocol in Pittsburgh for this patient population? Um, I think it's it's 
similar, um, where if they have persistent pain, they are usually discharged and they're follow-up in the um, spine clinic. Usually it's neurosurgery, and to be perfectly honest, it's usually um, run by a neurosurgical PA who sees those patients in follow-up. And then what happens when they, if they continue to have pain is a little bit variable. We're also an institution that does a lot of plain films for the initial evaluation and relatively limited uh, CT imaging of the neck. Um, and so I think that our protocol is fairly similar to um, what David described in Boston. The population that we have a really hard time with are the football injuries, the um, so-called stingers. So these are kids, helmet-to-helmet -helmet contact, neurologic symptoms at the scene that resolve by the time they reach the hospital or are markedly improved by the time they reach the hospital. Those kids often, um, we have a, a wide variety of, of things that we do. Most of them do get admitted. A lot of them end up with MRIs. Um, and so that, but that's a population in a football crazed portion of the country that we, we see a lot of this time of the year. And so for speaking from the adult provider perspective, you know, we, I think our life has become simpler here. Either that we can clear them clinically and we take the collar off, which is a minority, or we pretty much CT scan them, uh, for adults. And then when a kid comes in, I think we're all over the place. You know, some of us still scan them. Sounds like most of you guys are, st are still sticking with plain films. So, so maybe you could just comment on your your general approach, and we'll just say it's it's not the kid you can clear clinically. Uh, and and we'll let's say just two kids. One is one is awake, but but has significant neck tenderness and no neurologic exams. So so all three of you, you're happy with plain films and letting that kid go and not scanning them. And then the other is the, let's say, the kid with a TBI unconscious who you're scanning their head already, car crash. Do you just scan their C-spine or are you still just relying on plain films in that scenario? Yeah, so it's, um, that's a, a fascinating, uh, very difficult and related uh, area. Um, there... Um, just to finish off, the specific paper was for that that little niche of kids that is that are fine. They're going home. What do you do with their neck? Because they're you know they're otherwise neurologically intact, et cetera. Um, for the kids on arrival, we we do have like I think most places do now a, a protocol or an algorithm for clearance of the cervical spine. And um, we uh, I, I last time I looked, we were running around 40% of kids getting plain films. Um, and, uh, and as I mentioned, 0.2% of kids getting a, a CT. Um, and that's usually because a rotating resident somehow sneaks one through the path the radiologist. Um, and um, the, the issue for us in, in kids especially, it's uh, CT gives you beautiful pictures of the bones, and you can see the bones much better on CTs than plain film. And there certainly are kids who have uh, C-spine injuries, bony injuries, that the plain films will miss them. And... Um, but the, um, the the issue that we face is, is ligamentous injury, and these kids, you know, they, were, they didn't go home in a collar out of fear that the bone was broken. They they went home in a collar out of fear of ligamentous injuries. And when you look down the ten kids that had something, they were all um, disc and ligamentous related items that were picked up on MR. Um, and it's it's difficult for us sometimes to um, see initially is it just a little something or is it something you know more meaningful. Um, 
But in terms of initial clearance, um, you know, and this this might change when um, CT imaging uh, is becoming dramatically more radiation friendly than it used to be, and some of the newer generation scanners um, may soon rival um, plain films in terms of the radiation dose that they deliver to do a pediatric neck. Um, getting there, right? We're getting there pretty pretty quickly. Um, if that, um, but even with that, um, again, if uh, for initial clearance, um, the general philosophy is that in a neurologically stable patient, uh, that cervical spine clearance is not an emergency. And uh, the second principle is that uh, no one died from being in a collar. Um, so if the patient's neck is immobilized, um, they're not going to extend their injury from the immobilization. And um, other things can be dealt with, and you can come back and re-examine the patient uh, once, you know, the dust has settled and they're not afraid that we're going to eat them and their mother's at their side. And, you know, everything else has happened to allow you to get a good exam um, that, uh, the, again, that, that saved us a lot of imaging. Um, as far as unconscious patients, um, again, we, we don't clear a neck based on a CT. And if a, if a child has a normal CT scan, uh, we will still leave them in a collar um, until we have a chance to clear their ligaments. Uh, we've been going to, um, we do very few follow-up head CTs now. We do these vent check fast MRs, mm -hmm. and uh, usually in a few hours. And if a kid comes in obtunded, uh, we'll do plain films of their neck and um, a lateral and an AP of their neck. And then they'll, uh, when they come back, uh, when they go down for their vent check MR, we'll do their neck at that time. And you have to do it within a couple of days, otherwise you start getting these little areas of edema probably related to collar trauma. But um, we'll, we'll try to do that. Um, we say that we'll clear their neck uh, with that, um, but I have to say even with a normal MR and the normal plane films, um, it still scares me and uh, the kids... Uh, it has to depend if they're truly obtunded and they're going to be, you know, ICP monitoring and the rest of it for a while. Um, we may clear them with that. Um, but if they're somebody who we think is going to wake up in a short time, we'll we'll just keep them in a collar until they wake up. Sure. And and uh, any different approaches, uh, John or Barb? I think we're, we don't have the um, fast MRRs. Um, and so we don't utilize that. But we, and oftentimes if we have somebody with a significant traumatic brain injury, we will scan the neck at the same at the same time. I will say one of the reasons that we use plain films and we use them as a screening exam, and part of the reason is that anatomically you can get decent plain films on a child as opposed to an adult. And we can often see down to T2 on the lateral C-spine. So it, it's um, not only is it less radiation, but they're actually better films than in adult populations, and so they become a reasonable reading evaluation. And so if the plain films are abnormal, that then leads us to figure out what type of um, more advanced imaging we want to use. Yeah, at our place, it's um, it's kind of triggered by whether you're a trauma activation or not, you know, and that sort of being an indicator of um, likelihood of injury. So children who are trauma activations, if you're less than five and you're going to get a head CT, we'll scan occiput to C3 and do plain films um, in addition and try to lower the radiation exposure. You know, if they're already getting a head scan, the increment of 
additional radiation to get oxalipid to C3 is not much. Um, and if they're not going to get a head CT, we'll just do plain films. If you're over 5 and in activation, we'll do CT uh, of the NAG um, for the activations. If you're not in activation, then it's um, kind of this mixed bag of clinical exams, some cleared just clinically, and then I would say plain films are sort of the imaging of choice for that group. So hard to kind of put it all into neat little bins, but that's the general approach. And um, I think as Dr. Mooney already identified, you know, the current generation of CT scanners, the, the doses are lower, and, and the risk of dose is age-related as well. So the more that you become like an adult in terms of your size and physiology, you know, the less risk there is from radiation exposure. But that is probably a continuous variable, not just did you get a CT scan ever at all, but it, it is probably related to dose of radiation too. So I don't think we'll ever get entirely away from that, but, but sure. it seems to be something that I, I think the threshold for using CT, all things considered, as the technology improves, will will be lower. Because um, there it is easier, you know, in, in a practical sense um, for a lot of these kids than uh, getting plain films. But that's not the right reason to do the wrong thing, but just an observation of how you take care of some of these tough kids. So, Barb, you, you said with the unconscious TBI kid, you guys would probably get a C-spine CT. Uh, are, you taking the, are you taking the collar off based on a negative um, CT? Not always. Um, we're not usually, we're not always, in fact, we're probably not um, clearing um, kids based on the CT, but we have, um, there have been a couple kids that we've had um, significant, particularly AO dislocations that we mm -hmm. have um, missed um, who have had bad TBIs and then they've ended up with a significant AO dislocation. So we became a little bit more um, liberal in obtaining CTs of the neck um, in those populations, and they're the ones that are sometimes a little bit more difficult to get reasonable plain films. Again, I said we use plain films as our screen, but if you can't, if they are multiply injured um, and you can't get good plain films, then all of a sudden your screening film is no longer um, available. Um, in our abusive head trauma patients, we're going to more um, almost whole spine MRs because there has been there's a growing body of literature that suggests that some of the ischemic injury that they suffer may be a direct cervical spinal cord injury causing the apnea, which then causes the ischemic injury as opposed to um, a traumatic a traumatic brain injury per se. And so in that population, um, we are getting um, more MRs than we did previously. Hmm. Okay, Dave. Uh Question for you. I'm going to play devil's advocate on the on the paper. So, so if the only real benefit of keeping them in a collar is is you don't want to take a collar off or take immobilization off of someone who has an unstable spine injury. Uh, but if it's stable, you really don't don't get any benefit of immobilization. So, so it didn't seem like there were any unstable injuries that you identified in, in any of the patients. So why not just send them all home without a collar? If their x-rays are normal and they're walking around and, you know, they still have tenderness, but, but if you, I, I didn't see any unstable injuries or any that required surgical stabilization. So, so why not just take their collar off and not even put them through having to have a collar? Well, that's a very reasonable question. And, um, 
you know, we hear that frequently about things like uh, managing spleen injuries. You know, since uh, liver and spleen injury kids don't need operations, why don't, we, why don't we just send them home, you know, fill them full of fluid and send them home so they can stay on the couch instead of in our, our units? Sure. Um, and that's also a reasonable question. Um, for these kids, uh, many of them, they the collars for comfort. And um, we had these sort of padded up uh, longer-term collars, you know, not the transport collars. And they, um, the, we believe they have, they have enough spasm in their neck uh, or some minor ligamentous dings that, uh, you know, since we're not MRing them all, all uh, that we're not seeing, um, that are responsible for the pain. Um, I mean, I would agree with you that the ultimate outcome was, you know, paralysis or, you know, permanent paresthesia or some other cord injury. Um, we had one kid with some cord edema at follow-up on, on an MR, um, and uh, but that was about it. Um, and uh, I, I think that's reasonable. Like I, you know, we had those those kids who just disappeared. And like, like I said, when I we started talking about doing this study, um, I, I surprised the numbers weren't flipped and that seventy percent of them, you know, didn't come back because I just presumed they would take the collar off once their neck felt better and not sure. bother coming back. Um, so I think that's a reasonable question. Um, but I think I think for me the main use isn't so much. Um, protection from uh, paralysis is more for comfort. All right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a. I agree with John. It's a great paper. It's it's a complete complete real world paper. Yep. Uh, and 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 we deal with this pain just like you guys. Of the you know my neck still hurts and you've got negative imaging and what do you do now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just one other uh, comment. You know, I think one of the things that this paper helps with is uh, giving a little bit more um, bravado to clearing the neck in somebody who's not hurting. You know, for somebody that doesn't maybe see a ton of kids or whatever and has this otherwise good-looking kid who's in a collar, I think a paper like this says, you know, if they're not hurting, you can feel a lot better about clearing them because those that are hurting, they're going to be okay too. You know, I I think it, it just sort of builds that case of clinical clearance in children and, you know, I also thought it was interesting that those that, that sort of in follow-up had sort of other stuff uncovered on MRI, it really was the older patients. You know, they were, they were all adolescents in that group. So, you know, I don't know if Dr. Mooney has any observations about the younger patients or, or that sort of thing, too. But but I think this is I think this is helpful for people that are in the business of trying to clear the necks of children to feel better about that task uh, without relying or without pursuing as much imaging. I think it, it, it's helpful in that way. Yeah, I think, and I think every one of the kids who uh, still had an issue were a sports-related problem. And, um, you know, as the age decreases, the incidence of injury de- decreases. And, um, you know, this, these adolescents, um, you know, there's a crossover between a pediatric and an adult facility. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think they're – what did I don't want to misstate it, but I thought at the age of nine that the anatomy of the neck was pretty similar to adult anatomy, um, where the facets were rounded out and the bones were flatter and things like that. So, again, these are neck-wise. I think these are young adults, um, and but somehow we still managed to clear them without without uh, CTing them. Okay. Well, I think this has been a great discussion. Maybe uh, as a closing, uh, we can ask each of you. You know. Again, you've got a large audience of 
mostly adult trauma providers, are there pearls and pitfalls along these lines that you wish we all knew as we are dealing with injured children and potentially transferring them or sending them home? Start with you, uh, Dr. Mooney, and you, you tell the adult providers. Well, I think again, this is a the, this is for that um, that child with this neck pain. Um, they may or may not have had some neurologic findings on arrival that then resolved. Um, if, uh, but again, any neurologic symptoms, any um, um, you know sign of something more significant, uh, the child's not sort of walking around eating a popsicle. That uh, they, you know, we moved on to uh, MR for them to rule out uh, anything uh, meaningful. Uh, and I think, as Barb mentioned, the stinger injury, I think, is a fascinating uh, injury. Um, it would be great to see a multi-center trial for, of that because that's uh, not ex- sure exactly, uh, I'm not sure anyone is what to do about uh, that one. Um, but this is, again, those kids who just, they're, they've got some pain, everything else is fine. Uh, is it safe and reasonable to send them home in a collar? And, and I think uh, we've demonstrated uh, that it is, that the chance for that child to go home and you know, become paralyzed is, was zero in our study, and, and the kids who did have anything on their follow-up um, visits, um, things they were predominantly non-operative things that just needed a longer uh, period of immobilization to resolve. Okay, Dr. Gaines, any last last uh, thoughts or comments for me? Well, you know, I, I think that um, both of these papers show that um, for the provider who doesn't take care of children very often, the first thing is just the usual um, don't let them scare you. And, and as David and um, John said, that um, pediatric necks, children, um, they're not going to piss themselves. And so if they're not, if they're non-tender and full range of motion and they look pretty good, they probably are pretty good and it's okay um, to let them go home. Um, if they still seem, if they look pretty good, but they still seem tender, then letting them go home in a collar. Um, with the caveat that I do think that probably some type of follow-up would be important um, is probably okay. Our paper says that um, the kid who doesn't look so hot and starts to have abnormalities in laboratories, um, particularly something that's a pretty common one to look at, the INR, um, is probably somebody that does need to be um, transferred or evaluated more closely because they're starting to so, show some signs that maybe they're not okay and maybe there really is something significantly um, abnormal in that particular child. Okay, last, uh, John Pitty, any final comments from you? Um, you know, not to rehash what's already been said, I, I think these papers sort of show in a sort of a small slice sort of why adult trauma and pediatric trauma sort of need each other. You know, I think as uh, I, I would say, the adult understanding of traumatic coagulopathy is further down the road than the pediatric understanding is. And I think when I go to East, you know, or adult trauma meetings, I'm really curious to hear what's going on. At the same time, the C-spine paper would sort of say maybe less is more, you know, for something like that. And I think there's you can think of a ton of examples for how uh, practice on both sides of that benefits from having kind of a counterpoint um, to inform how you take care of patients and maybe the assumptions that we carry into the care of the patients that we see a lot of, maybe we could sort of step back from that um, to see sort of how the the other side of the coin is managing these things. So anyway, I think these papers illustrate some of the pediatric myths, but also uh, some of the what we're learning or inheriting from adult trauma that could maybe benefit our pediatric patients too. 
Very well said. Very, very uh, timely comment as well. I appreciate that. Well, thank you all for joining us, Dr. Petty, Dr. Gaines, Dr. Mooney. It's been a great discussion, and uh, I'm sure our listeners have benefited from your expertise. Thank you very much for making time for us today. Again, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thanks a lot, you guys. That was that was a great conversation, and, and thanks for the two papers. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.